uh, we're, we're going to spend about three or four or five minutes asking uh, me asking questions people have asked me that I have no answers to, okay? Number one, I, ass- long to get this I think we're okay. We're okay. We're okay here. Um, I think, um, does number 23 in the New York Times bestseller, that, that indicates that you know this is being... Realized? What? This is not on? Oh, it is? Yeah. Uh, no, I just realized that um, it's number 24. Number 24? Yeah. Okay. See, it's already sliding. <laughs> it's a- it was 23. No, it's going to be 23 next week. They tell you... This is what's so creepy, is that whatever the number is, is what happened two and a half weeks ago. Oh, That's really? no kidding. I, I found this out. I did not know that. No kidding. I did not know that, sir. So what is going up still? <clears throat> so next week will be 23. Well, yeah. Uh, okay. No, no, no. Okay. When I, listen, whenever anybody praises you, like this guy always embarrasses me, it makes you realize how small you really are. <laughs> right? It's true. And... uh and like the whole stuff with the book, it's, it's been very embarrassing for me because I know the truth. Like I know what's going on and it's nothing like as good as it sounds. I mean, that's a true. That's true. But I'm not kidding. OK, you bet. Now, how many of y'all, how many of you, not that I watch this normally, um, just Friday night, Eric was on uh, Fox News. I know some of you don't watch Fox News and uh, on Sh- Hannity and Combs. Yeah, yeah. Is that wild? Yeah, you saw that. Yeah, and uh, yeah. that was great. That was great. So you've been on a lot of TV interviews. No. <laughs> you've been on. I, somebody told me last I'm night. Just trying to make I, you look like a liar. <laughs> somebody told me last I, night you were on Seven Hundred Club. I yes. Is that, that still on TV? How was that? He <laughs> said the cameras are on, but I don't know. <laughs> no, that's. Uh, Yes, yeah, whatever Pat says. Yes, sir. You know, uh, yeah, no, I, I was on that. I was on that. Uh, that's the beauty of this is that you could get on shows that are like conservative and extra conservative. You know, that's the beauty. This is just reaching all peoples. It's beauty. No, actually, this I was on. I actually want to mention that later. I was on National Public Radio, which is not on TV. But uh, I was on National Public Radio and I was on C-SPAN Book Notes. And that, to me, is part of what's so cool about this, about Wilberforce, to be honest with, with you all, is that Wilberforce is like one of these figures that he's very attractive to very politically liberal people, very conservative people. I want to talk a little bit about that, but it, it is amazing to me. You know, there are not yeah. many people that they're on national public radio, and then 18 hours later, they're on 700 Club, which is what happened to me. That's, that's never been done before. That's true. That's true. That's, Okay, real quick, one more question, and uh, because you're very involved with the producers. I got nothing here. Let's keep this going. Yeah. I, you're, you're, I'm, I know you're very close with the producers of the movie Amazing Grace. Oh, we're tight. And uh, tight. how? What? How's that? They're doing? waiting in a car, so you better hurry. By up the way, <laughs> it's still on, it's still on Highway Ten. I checked this morning. If you haven't seen it yet, it's still um, what? Highway Ten's a theater that a lot of us oh, go to. Okay. It's like over in that direction. It's still on there. Um, how's that being received? Has a movie, the movie being received? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's like they started it on, I'm learning about this now, right? They started it on like 790 screens, which is, you know, normally when a big movie opens up, it's more like 3,000 screens yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So their goal was to, do, to have a very high per screen average. For some reason, in the movie business, people care about that. I'm not in the movie business. But, um, but they, got a, they got a very high per screen average. I guess they were like trying to get a lot of churches and stuff to go see it. And then they opened 
they said if it does well that way, then they'll open it to more theaters. So now it's like in a thousand theaters. But it seems to be doing well enough each week that they're going to kind of keep it out there. And uh, so one of the things I was going to say was, if you have not seen it, please go see it. First of all, it is an amazing, it is a great film. And you could take a 10-year-old or an 85-year-old. I mean, it's one, how many films can you say that? I've seen it twice and I'm going to go back again. I mean, it's it's great. Yeah, no, so it's it's doing, it's doing well. I hope it keeps building. Don't leave me, Rich. No, you're you're good. You're good. good. Come on. You're good. You're good. good. He's a tough (laughs) (laughs) Well, good morning. I, uh, Rich, he just embarrasses me because he makes me realize, as I told you before, like he says all these things about me and I just go like, oh, this guy, he's making himself seem like he's so dull here every week. And, um, that's the, your big shoes to fill, my friend. So cut it out, cut that out, man. Um, it's like, I guess I come in as like the uncle, right? Like it's like dad is just dad, but like the fun uncle comes in and he gets to take you, you know, I don't know, sledding or something like that. And it's like, I love Uncle So-and-so, and you don't know Uncle So-and-so's got a drinking problem when he's not here. And, you know, like, but, but all the kids love him because they don't know about this stuff, right? So thank you for making me attractive, you know, for the, for the kids here. That's a, I don't know. But um, it is true, though, right? When somebody praises you, it makes you realize, oh, man, I'm, I, wish I, were like, I wish I were like that. But I know I'm not. So, but that's wisdom. So um, I have... Um, I want to make sure uh, that I communicate um, a couple things to you. First of all, why am I wearing the green pants? Do you know? The wearing of the green, Rich. The wearing of the green. Yesterday, my daughter and I... What? Yes, I know. I've been wearing these for three days. What's the problem? Uh, no, the... Uh, the, the um, yesterday, I uh, had to take my daughter skating in Central Park and all this different stuff, and I, I staggered out of the house and, and wearing an orange jacket... I was shot at. Um, it wasn't just not green, it was orange. I don't know if you know about the political situation, but that's not good. Um, so today I thought, uh, yeah, I better wear the green in case anybody sees me again. But, um, you know, there's a sermon to be preached about St. Patrick. Most people don't know. St. Patrick was not always drunk. Did you know that? He was nothing like, it's kind of weird how holidays devolve into something the opposite of what they really are. St. Patrick was an extraordinary saint of God. Like he was one of the holiest men who ever lived. He wasn't just like a folk hero like Paul Bunyan, you know, chasing snakes out of Ireland and stuff. And if you are ever curious, you can read a book called How How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill. And he gets into that a little bit. But St. Patrick was one of the most holy Christian men I mean, it really is so radically different from what we've heard. So I just want to say that to you since it's the weekend to think about St. Patrick and, and who he really was. But he was just a, a, real, a real saint, like one of these holy men who prayed and heard from God and God used him, you know, kind of like Wilberforce, like one of these people that you just, when you know what his life was like, it's really humbling. Um, how the Irish saved civilizations. I'll be signing copies of that later. Um, I want... I want to talk uh, a little bit, last time, uh, I mean, last time I spoke about Wilberforce, which is in July, I think, was I was in the middle of writing the book, or I had just kind of finished the first draft, and so the story of Wilberforce was, was on my mind, and I wanted to communicate that, because most people don't know 
the story of Wilberforce, but having shared that here once, and now that there's this movie out and a book, you can check out the story for yourself. And I, I do mean it. If you haven't seen the movie, it, it'll probably go away any week. I beg of you, go see the movie. The movie is very different from my book. Um, if there's anybody qualified to be nitpicky about the movie, it's the guy who wrote the book, right? I don't mean that they based the, the movie on my book, because uh, they didn't. But um, what I'm saying is that as different as the movie is, it's fantastic. And I, I'm in awe of movie, uh, movie making, having seen the difference. Like now that I met the director and you just think, wow, that's, it's a real art form. And I'm in awe of how he took the life of this man and distilled it into a movie and figured out what to tell about and what to leave out. That's just not something that I've ever done. Anybody here, probably, probably somebody here has done that. I've never done that. And I was really in awe of it because now I know the story. And I was really amazed at how it didn't put me off. Like I didn't think, oh, that's wrong and that's wrong. And there were a lot of things that were, you know, they, they did the movie making thing where they, you know, take three characters and make them into one. Uh, for example, Wilberforce was actually three women. You wouldn't know that, right? In my book, that's very clear. Uh, but they figured, you know, focus grouped it, and they figured, no, we're just going to make it one guy, you know. Um, but that's not true. But there are, there are little things like that, but um, they did it so well that I actually thought, wow, that's exactly what you should have done. That's really an amazing way to tell the story. And they, the, the movie only tells a fraction of his life. I mean, the most extraordinary thing. The reason they made the movie, the reason my book was uh, written this year is because this is the bicentennial of the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire, not slavery. The first thing they did was abolish the slave trade. Um, and that was such a big deal that we, we celebrate that more than the abolition of slavery in a way, because it was the first step in the end of, you know, it was this ultimate pioneering uh, work th that they did. And that was 1807, and it was a 20-year battle. And so the movie basically is about that. It's about this 20-year battle to abolish the slave trade. So Michael Apted, the guy who directed it, wanted to make that film a film about this 20-year battle. So it's mostly a political film. Apted is not a Christian. He just saw this wonderful story of how do you, how do you use politics for good? And um, so he wanted to tell that story. And he told it so well. And as I say, if you have to pick... That, that's the first thing you want to tell about. That's what made Wilberforce um, famous, ultimately, was this 1807 victory. Everything else seems secondary, historically speaking. Now, when you look into it the way I have, you start seeing that, wow, there is so much else, and it's really not secondary. In some ways, it's, it formed the basis of his ability to do uh, what he did in 1807. But for historical purposes, for mainstream purposes, um, they did the right thing in telling that story. And as I, I just cannot recommend the movie enough, I've seen it three and a half times now. I'm not sure what the half me what that means. Maybe I like I saw an eighth of it four times. That's kind of true because I've spoken after several screenings. So it's like I saw this little ending part of it, and I've seen the beginning or whatever. So I feel like I've seen it three and a half times. But what is extraordinary, and when I, what I want to uh, mention is that twice I've seen the movie in uh, what I would characterize as um, sort of secular humanist liberal Manhattan audiences. Now, I, I'm not, that's not my interpretation. I think if we had time, I'd explain that to you. Uh, I was asked to speak 
after one of these. It was at the Walter Reed Theater in Lincoln Center. Bless you. And one of the ways that I knew it was this kind of an audience was because it was Sunday morning at 10 a.m., right? <laughs> and I was on the Upper West Side, and it was this whole, it was this whole, it's this whole film thing that they, they see films or whatever. Uh, and the other time was, um, uh, well, it was very similar. And another time I saw the film in what I would consider a conservative evangelical Christian audience, and that was in Kentucky, where they only have those. <laughs> That's not true, but this one was, mostly. But what's so wild is that in both venues, the audiences loved, loved the movie to the point of applause and, you know, people with tears in their eyes as they left the theater. Well, that's, uh, I start thinking, boy, that's rare. That's outrageous. How does, how's it possible that a movie, uh, that a life, uh, that hopefully, hopefully my book, but, but that the life of Wilberforce and that this movie could have that kind of appeal, you have to admit that's extremely rare that that gets pulled off somehow. How did that get pulled off? And it makes me think about why I think Wilberforce is so amazing. I was just now uh, half joking with Rich about, I mean, it was, I was on NPR and 18 hours later, I was on the set of the 700 Club. Now that's, that's, that's nuts. Not many people could survive that kind of crazy stuff. I think of that as like a cultural baby split in bowling, you know, like the 710 pit. It's like the pins are very far away. Nobody could, nobody could put that kind of spin on the ball and get that pin to shoot over. And I did it. I did it. I did it. So um, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, but I had to go to the chiropractor right after because that was, that was tough stuff. But um, I just want to talk about how I think it's possible for a movie or a story, a life, to appeal that way to two groups that are that different. And to me, um, th- th- there's a history lesson. First of all, when, uh, I want to tell you the history briefly, when Wilberforce came to faith in the 1780s, religion, Christian religion, was the only kind of religion really in, the, uh, in Great Britain at the time, if you were going to vote for or against religion, right? Religion was very unpopular. It was uh, a nation reeling from the excesses of religion of the previous century, religious wars and violence and whatever. Religion was bad. It was thought to be really negative. And so when Wilberforce has this conversion, it's, you know, it was this like tiny group of people very serious about their faith. They were called Methodists or enthusiasts, right? It's kind of like born again, evangelical, like this little group that was really on the outs socially, okay? Most people in that culture uh, would have sneered at somebody of that kind of faith. So it was not, a, it was not a, a culture with a lot of positive feelings toward faith. So Wilberforce comes into this situation, and what's interesting is that, except for this small group of very serious Christians, everyone, liberal and conservative, left and right, politically, everyone except the crazy Christians agreed that slavery was a good thing, pretty much. And they also pretty much agreed that the poor were poor because that's, that's just kind of the way it was. It's, 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 uh, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. I don't want to get into it. But, but there was this feeling that it was only this small group of devout Christians who had the worldview to say that we're all made in God's image, uh, that we've got to uh, use our power 
to help those who have no power, that if we've been blessed, it's to be a blessing. In other words, those ideas were not in the culture the way they are today. Today, you know, everybody seems to know that. I mean, you know, you could have a very secular country like Sweden or whatever, and everybody seems to understand, like, you know, we've got to... We've got to get health care. We've, we've got to figure out how to do this. We're going to argue about how we're going to do it. But nobody argues whether we should do it. We all pretty much agree because we live in a culture now that sees things very differently than they were seen when Wilberforce was a young man in Great Britain. And so what happened was when Wilberforce became a Christian, he became a Christian at a time when what I would call faith and works were united. In other words, if you were a Christian, you basically said, okay, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe what the Bible says, I believe all these things theologically are important, and these things drive me to do good to my fellow man. These things force me to live more humbly, maybe to save money, to help the poor, to start schools, to teach people to read, to help the poor... um, in their various situations to create laws uh, for, you know, child labor laws to improve that situation. In other words, it was a wide open field, right? It was like, you know, capitalists understand this, like there's no business over there. So we go in, we're the first ones, we make a mint, you know, this is what it was like in terms of helping those who suffered and social injustice. No one, no one was doing anything about anything pretty much. It was a laissez faire society, like social Darwinism. If you had power, you used it to get more power. If you had money, you used it to get more money. If you didn't, too bad. Like, that's the whole culture. So, so this only really the Christians at the time, and again, so radical because the world's so different today, only they understood that, no, we've got to right wrongs. We've got to help those. We've got to, like, God is commanding us to do this. God is commanding us to do this. So, um, and of course, I'm oversimplifying this to some extent, but not that much. That's what amazed me. Um, so they come into this situation, and so Wilberforce represents a time when what today uh, is theologically called faith and works were united. He knew that to worship God, to worship the God of the Bible, means to spend myself to help those who need help. That's what it means. And if I don't do that, I can't be a good Christian. I can't just be talking about my faith. If I'm like preaching and not doing, something's wrong. Uh, If I'm just talking to people about how they have to get saved, but I'm not actually living self-sacrificially, that's like hypocrisy. I have to be doing both. The two are one. They're two sides of the gospel. There's no way to divorce them. Uh, And so Wilberforce and his friends lived that. So he, he lived at a time when these two things were one. But what happened, which is extraordinary, is that he, uh, he pulled these ideas, which were you know, biblical ideas, into the mainstream because, he, because of where he stood politically. And when you pull these ideas about you know, human beings being created in the image of God, how we have to respect those who are beneath us and we have to love them and we have to help them and we have to do things to use our power to, to bless those who have no power. When you take these ideas and you import them into the mainstream and the nation begins to change and parliament begins to make laws and slavery gets abolished and there's penal reform and child labor laws and when all these things begin to happen, uh, 
the whole society changes. And you could say that as a result of a, of a few people, Wilberforce and the, the people that he was with, that the entire nation swung in that direction and goodness, being good, helping the poor and all these different things became fashionable in a sense. And the whole Victorian era, in a way, is a, is, is a legacy uh, to Wilberforce and his friends, that you have this era suddenly where there's so many societies to help the poor and do all these different things that we kind of joke about it today, like that a society for indigent, you know, blah, 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 and this and this, that we kind of laugh about the Victorian era. But in a way, it's, it's, it was the result of this, this small group. But it became so mainstream, and it became so fashionable, that everyone, kind of like today began to think this way, not just this tiny group of crazy Christians, and so that by the 1920s, let's say, there was a split. Something called what we today sometimes call the social gospel arose, where people started questioning certain aspects of the theology because certain parts of science and, and so on and so forth were, were beginning to cast doubt on the truth of the Bible and so on and so forth. So some people said, well, look, we're just, uh, we don't know about that stuff, so we're, gonna, we're not going to worry about, you know, if Jesus was born of a virgin, we're not going to worry about if he literally rose from the dead, we're not going to worry about uh, a lot of those miracles and stuff, because we don't know, and we, now we have questions about it, but we do know that it's important for us to help the poor, it's important for us to do these things, so we're going to do those things, and we're not going to worry about the theology. So there was this curious split, where some people... A lot of mainstream churches, the church that I go to in Manhattan was one of the flagships of this kind of thinking that they were sure that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and wasn't born of a virgin. And they, they you know, so they, they were actually talking about that. They weren't just ignoring it, but they were actually saying that we don't believe that stuff, but we believe we've got to help the poor and we've got to do these things. So there was a strange split historically, and it went this way. And then some people who call themselves fundamentalists said, well, wait a minute, we've got to these things are, they're the foundation of the faith. You know, Jesus' birth and resurrection and mir- literal miracles. These things are really, really important. These are the fundamentals of the faith. So they started focusing so much on the theology that in some ways you can see that the doing good stuff kind of got left to these people and the talking about the theology kind of got taken in this direction and there was a weird split. Wilberforce existed before that split. But we've lived in a world where there, there is a kind of a split. There are people always talking about, you know, you've, you've got to meet Jesus as your Savior, and you've got to do it, you've got to do it. There's a lot of that kind of talking about the Bible and what the Bible says. And over here, there's a lot of doing good and whatever. But it's strange, because they're divorced to some extent. Now, I don't mean completely, because there's, you know, plenty on both sides and plenty uh, crossover. But basically speaking, there's a split. So... What I see is that these are both parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's rather obvious when you, when you understand it that, that they're supposed to be connected. And so what I see in these movie theaters is I see two different kinds of audiences responding to two different kinds of things that both lead back to truth. We all know, because we we're creating God's image, we know that helping the poor is the right thing. We know, even if we don't know why we know. Somehow we know and we respond to that. And so some audiences respond to that, and it's like they're seeing, you know, Robert F. Kennedy or somebody, like they see something, they just know that it's good, but they wouldn't necessarily trace it back to the Christianity of a Wilberforce. And then there are other people that see the vibrant faith of a Wilberforce, and uh, they, they identify with that. And so I, I just find that very interesting, but I think that part of Wilberforce's coming back into... Uh, 
our consciousness as a culture has to do with, you know, God wanting to reunite these two things. Because frankly, you, you can't really have one without the other. They're not meant to exist independently. And I think that part of that is, for example, Wilberforce talked about loving your enemies. Now, this is pretty interesting. He was, I always feel like you can tell a real Christian about this one, on this one issue, do you love your enemies? Because that's the crazy stuff right there. That's like super radical, you know, how do you, but I don't know. I mean, I, I hate my enemies. Is that the same thing? I, is that wrong? And then you got other people say, well, I have no enemies. I'm, I'm not like Jesus. I have no enemies. Uh, well, no, you probably, probably, we, we all have enemies. If you have any beliefs, there are people who are going to fight against your beliefs and whatever. So the question is, do you love your enemies? And then we say, we say these things, and what does it mean? How do you love your enemies? Because it sounds like one of those platitudes that you just go, oh, yeah, it's very spiritual, but how do I love my enemies? And I think that this is part of the key to these two things being united, is that, thank you, my wife wanted that. Thank you. <laughs> um, but there was something in my book that I wanted to uh, just read a paragraph. This is how Wilberforce loved his enemies. Well, there are two ways that he did it, actually. The first way, which I should mention, was that he had, when he spoke against the slave traders, now you want to talk about somebody who could be your enemy. These people were getting rich off of the indescribable suffering of other human beings. I mean, if you read my book, uh, you will see this is no joke. I mean, this was, it's worse than you imagine when you read it, when you see it. But um, the Prime Minister, Percival, in around 1812, um, was a friend of Wilberforce's, and Wilberforce was really hopeful that uh, some of his um, reforms and so on and so forth would be enacted because Percival was kind of on his side politically. One day, Percival is assassinated. Some guy had a grudge against the government, comes in, no metal detectors in those days, bang, dead. So... <clears throat> I couldn't believe, you know, this is the sort of thing about what you put in a book and what you don't. Um, Wilberforce <clears throat> remembers that uh, his dear friend, uh, Stephen, James Stevens, who was a very devout Christian, went uh, and went to the murderer and uh, prayed with him and tried to talk to him and try to try to get him to repent and you know you, you wanted to but he went to the murderer we remember the pope doing that a number of years ago uh with the man who tried to kill him uh, and then <clears throat> uh, this is from wilberforce's journal he says <clears throat> the poor creature bellingham this is the murderer was much affected and very humble and thankful poor mrs percival now this is the wife of the prime minister who had just been killed with all her children, knelt down by the body and prayed for the murderer's forgiveness. I thought, you know, you don't do that unless you're, you're serious about your faith in God, unless you take Jesus seriously. You don't do that. It does not come naturally to pray for the forgiveness of the person who has murdered your husband, who was not old, and as his body lies there, that doesn't just kind of come out of us naturally. At least it would not come out of me naturally. Um, but this was the power 
that there were a few people who had that kind of faith, that they believed in God that seriously, that they would do that. Wilberforce also, as I mentioned, was very gracious to his enemies. In Parliament, he was not... He did not demonize his opponents. If anybody should be demonized, I would think, would be these people who were making a lot of money off of the indescribable suffering of these other human beings. Wilberforce always, and you know, you, you can get some of this from the book because there's so much to say, but you read other books on him and you'll see. It's not my interpretation from his journals and so on and so forth. He knew that when you become a Christian, you see that you are not better than other people. If you think you're better than other people, you're just a moralist. That's what the Pharisees were. You can be very religious and not get it, right? Because if it makes you feel like I'm better than people morally, you're, you're like a Pharisee. What happened to Wilberforce is that meeting God humbles you and makes you realize, I'm no better than anyone. You know that. And therefore, you're thankful to God, and you want to love those people who don't get it, who are doing terrible things. You don't want to demonize them and harden their hearts. You want to, you want to love them. Um, just as uh, Stevens goes to the murderer and tries to, to talk to him, and just as Wilberforce is appealing to these members of parliament who were making a lot of money off of suffering, he wanted to defeat them politically. They were his enemies, but he was also loving his enemies by being gracious to them, by not talking to them like, you're evil and I'm good and we're going to crush you because we got the votes or we're going to get the votes. He never had that attitude. His heart was always humble and full of love. And I think, ultimately, that is the power that we have. When I think of the civil rights movement in this country, you know, Martin Luther King was a very devout Christian. You don't hear that so much today. When he was on the bus, you know, he told the people on the bus, if you cannot turn the other cheek, get off the bus. This is going to be the power of God. People are going to see the power of God, of Jesus, revealed in you. Because you are right, but you're only right if you let God be right in you and through you. If you can love those who are unlovable on any human level, but God has the power to love them, because they will see that in you, and it will scare them. They will see God in you. And that's how you love your enemies, by showing them the love of God, it's a frightening thing if you've ever seen the, the love of God. It's big. It's a little bit bigger than we are. And I think that that kind of thing is what makes social action united to Jesus Christ. And that's what gives it the power. And the reason that Wilberforce was able to bring across the abolition of the slave trade and then ultimately the abolition of slavery in the British Empire without the kind of bloodshed that we had in this country, without the kind of carnage that they had in France at the same time, unbelievable carnage, because he knew that God had commanded him to love his enemies, not just to despise them and to defeat them either militarily or politically, but to defeat them in this crazy way that united the love of Jesus with social action. Um, that's what gave him the moral authority. And even his opponents, they had to, they were a little bit stopped because they said, there's something real here. This, this man is not just, he's not just disagreeing with us socially or politically or culturally. It's not just he's come over here and we're over here. There was something more that was there. <clears throat> and it did not always, people didn't always see it. But eventually over the years, people saw it and it gave him an incredible moral authority. So that's to me what makes Wilberforce 
a singular figure, and especially a figure that we need to rediscover today, because the two need to become one. If, we, if people are yapping about Jesus or the Bible, but they're not loving their fellow man and not loving their enemies, it just stinks of hypocrisy. People say something's wrong. If this were real, you'd be, hey, you'd be behaving differently, you'd be, you'd, be, you'd be doing things differently. Otherwise, you just come across as a moralist, and it annoys me, and it really annoys me because there's nothing worse than hypocrisy. But at the same time, if you're just doing good, but you don't even, you don't know why, just because everybody else is doing good or because it's like the hip thing to do to be involved with a cause, that kind of saddens God because you can't fool God just by doing good things. He wants you to to be expressing his love for you in others. So I really, I just wanted to leave you with that idea that these two things are one, that faith and works are supposed to be united. The Bible says that, faith without works is dead. That if you really believe in God or you say you do, people will see it in the way that you behave, in what you do. And I, I feel like that's been, it's just something that we haven't, we haven't talked about much in, in our culture. We kind of get into this left and right battle. I think everybody's tired of that. I hope you are. It, it's, something, it's something beyond that. So I want to leave you with that. And um, <clears throat> also to say finally that Wilberforce was a really praying man, and that's something that really humbled me, is that he just wasn't on the right side of issues. He spent a lot of time praying, and I think that's where you get your power from. In fact, I know you do, that if you pray to God, number one, he humbles you. When you spend time in God's presence, it makes you feel like less of a hotshot, and you start depending more on him. But that's where the power comes from. And then when you are trying to help your fellow man, the power of God is with you. He's in you. Because guess what? He wants to do those things. Um, So I've just been really moved by this and really humbled by this, which is a great thing. So let me just close with with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we just ask you to reveal this to us, Lord. These many of these things are mysteries. Uh, They're confusing. Uh, We ask you, um, Lord, to reveal yourself. Reveal yourself as a reality, Lord. Uh, Help us, Lord, to get around those things that keep us from seeing... um, how beautiful you are, how much you love us, uh, how you want to use us to do things that we cannot do ourselves to bless others. Um, We just ask that your love would be revealed in us, and we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.